Hello, this is Sophia. And I'm Victoria. And you're listening to It's All History to Me, Auburn's History Radio Hour at 8 a.m. on Thursdays. Each week, we will interview a history professional with the theme of uncovering untold stories. Let's get started. I am in a conventional dither with a conventional star in my eye. And you will know there's a lump in my throat when I speak of that wonderful guy. Hello, and welcome back to It's All History to Me, here live at Wego 91.1 at 8 a.m. on Thursdays. Today, we're joined by Dr. Eleanor Patterson. Dr. Patterson is an assistant professor of media studies here at Auburn University. She received her bachelor's and master's degrees in communication from Cal State, Monterey Bay, and the University of Maine, respectfully, before getting her PhD in media and cultural studies from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Currently, she is working on her book, Bootlegging the Airwaves, Alternative Histories of Radio and Television Distribution. Her research interests include broadcast and media history, audience, and industry studies. At Auburn, she teaches a history of broadcasting class, as well as a course on gender and sexuality in media. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Patterson. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Of course. You graduated with degrees focusing on media and cultural studies. What drew you to this unique field of study? Um, (laughs) Well, I think... (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, We all have our stories that we tell about ourselves, about the past, right? That is what history is. Um, I did not set out in my life to be a broadcast historian. (laughs) Um, I think I was actually more interested perhaps in journalism when I was in high school. Um, And then I ended up going to Cal State Monterey. Um, There was a lot required to get a journalism degree Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, or to focus on journalism. So I, I took a general communication major. I did take quite a few media and film classes in that. Um, but I think this is where I tell my own narrative of my history. Uh, my father worked in the film industry. Oh, wow. And um, I was the first to go to college, right? Mm. And um, so I think I always had a view of, of things happening behind the scenes, interest in how things came to be. Uh, my father was a sound editor. It's an invisible form of labor oh, yeah. in film. Um, if a sound editor does his job right, you can't tell. Mm. <laughs> you know, it looks like people are talking naturally. It looks mm. like, you know, heels are making noise on the ground. So I think I was always, I always kind of had a predisposition to being interested in that. Um, and, and in communication, I was a, my yearbook editor. I was yeah. very interested in photography, journalism, film, and media studies. So uh, I think those were some of the things I, that drew me to this topic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Very cool. Okay, so kind of in a similar vein, how did you get interested in history as a media (laughs) studies professor? (laughs) Well, and so, I mean, my interest, again, like I didn't set out to be a media historian. Um, I I actually was more interested in gender studies um, and communication. And I think when I was finishing up my bachelor's degree and thinking about getting a master's, I really was just not sure what I wanted to do. Mm. I wanted to, I knew I wanted to move across the country. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I was looking at a few different schools in New England, and I just looked at the University of Maine. um, I looked at their communication program and some of the topics people were writing about, and I went there and I wrote my master's thesis on the television show 30 Rock and and gender and post-feminism. 
And I went into my PhD kind of thinking I wanted to do something similar, like television, gender studies, um, looking at content and analyzing the text, right? Mm -hmm. um, but there's, you know, there are people who go to get their PhD um, who have a predetermined research project, and they absolutely do it. You know, every class they take is like building towards their dissertation. Mm -hmm. I, um, I'm very, I'm very glad that I went in and I had, I kind of let the process shape oh, me. Oh yeah. And I had a like much like you guys do with as undergraduates. I had a required class, a historiography class. Mm. The woman who taught it at Wisconsin was sort of the godmother of broadcast history. Oh, wow. And um, during that class, I kind of fell in love with doing historical research. And one of our, one of the things that we did was going into the archive oh, and wow. looking through uh, materials there. And, um, and at the same time, <laughs> I, I was taking another methods class on ethnography, and I... <laughs> For better or for worse, I had chosen um, our local public radio station to do like a, a semester long observation mm. because it was one floor above our department. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> uh, Wisconsin Public Radio is the sixth floor of the communication building. Yeah. The Department of Communication was the sixth. Wait, no. WPR was floor seven. We were on floor six. So I could go up and do my 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 like homework, I guess you could say, my observations. And I was observing um, a radio show that was made up of, of a compilation of really old radio programs. Oh. So it was kind of like almost reruns. Yeah. And I was started to wonder, like, why are people still listening to this? Where oh, do yeah. these recordings come from? Um, and it kind of all came together in a way that made me want to do more, to find out, like, more about it. And so... Yeah. Those things coalesced, and I was like, well, I think I want to do my, my, my dissertation on, on radio. And <laughs> ah. that's, I mean, and specifically the his, like a history of it in, in after television. So that's, I don't know, I think <laughs> not by choice, but by happenstance. But I'm very grateful that it has been that way because I love, I love studying history. Yeah, yeah, that's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you're gonna be like, well, my my method is as always is stumble upon. <laughs> hey, whatever works. <laughs> That's my yeah. explanation for most. How did this happen? Well, I stumbled upon yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why is history important to the field of media studies? Oh gosh. Well, <laughs> I am probably not going to give them a full comprehensive answer to that because I think. Media studies itself is such a diverse field, mm. and history is complicated. Yeah, <laughs> I'm yes. I'm sure you guys know this. Um, but I would say that I think history is important to media studies, and media studies is important to history. Oh, yeah. Because no matter what kind of history you're doing, you're accessing it through media, mm. right? Like, we're not going back in a time machine to look at the medieval period, Gosh, I'm, I'm going into an era I know nothing about. <laughs> but, I mean, like, when, whether you're looking at um, archival materials or um, art or anything that's telling you about the past, it's being mediated through some form of communication. Mm, and, and, yeah. and so I think understanding technology and, and how different forms of communication, different, form, different media understanding their history is just also just very important to historians generally. Right. Um, <clears throat> I think as a, as a media, film and media studies scholar, 
understanding how things came to be the way that they are mm. um, can show us how different forms of media have transformed and how they stay the same because history is the study of transitions and transformations, right? right. Um, so, like, for instance, with Weagle, or if we, if we were to think about this radio station, you mm. know, how, how, how did it come to be this way? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, the format of a talk show goes, probably goes back to the 1930s. Mm. Um, and, and on also, like, having college radio stations, just thinking about, um, <laughs> I'm getting off the top, off, off on a tangent, but media, or, or I guess I'm talking about broadcasting. That's what I study right, specifically. Right. It's not just one thing. It's a technology. It's an industry. It's an art form, and there and then there's always an audience. Mm-hmm. And these are these these different factors influence how things are shaped and how they continue to be shaped. And we live in a today. I mean, I would say we've always lived in a very mediated environment. Mm-hmm. But over the last hundred years, <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, um, you know, we it, the mass media. And our ecosystem is absolutely influenced by how we communicate through media. So, I mean, I just don't think, um, I don't think you can understand, if you're going to study television or film, I don't think you can do that without having some grounding in, 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 in the history of what has happened before. Like, if, right. if I talk to my students who take my classes, like, if you want to go and be a filmmaker, you want to go be a writer on television like Shonda Rhimes, you know, she understands the history of the form right. and the genre, yeah. But also, revenue, <laughs> right? Um, and technology, and I think that gives you an idea of, of how things have come to be the way they are, but also where your place in that is. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a great answer, and totally like it makes sense tying in all those things. And I like what you said about how like media is kind of that vessel for history. And that yes. that's a central part. And then in addition to like the field specifically, knowing how you got to where you are is vital to being successful in the future. So, yeah. Right. That really makes sense. Well, and, and history is always also, I'm like, is this, uh, <laughs> like, what is it? Um, history is always also, like, a sto- the stories we tell ourselves. Right. And if you were to look at, at br- any trade journal related to broadcasting, Variety, Hollywood Reporter, they're always talking about their history mm-hmm. as they make sense of the present. Yeah. Thinking, okay, like, ratings are down, my viewing is gone, cable is dying. Well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, and, and within that is a story we are telling about where we have come from. Oh, yeah. With it, within an industry. Mm-hmm. And the industry has vested interests in, in, in telling stories a certain way. <laughs> right, yeah. So understanding, understanding what really has happened or understanding some things that have happened helps us complicate just, especially if you're working in the industry, but even if mm-hmm. we're consuming television to understand, um, well, you know, this, like, a cable, it may not be dying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Know? It's just being reshaped in a different way. Right, absolutely. That's a good point. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think that students of history can gain from the field of media studies? Gosh. <laughs> well, <laughs> um <clears throat> Like, did I already make my point? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, what can student gain from the field of media studies? Well, I think, I don't think you, like, I think the story, um, 
the history of film or the his- the history of broadcasting over the last hundred years is the history of our country. Mm-hmm. Like I think you cannot understand other historical events without understanding the role of media, not as like cause and effect, but as part of a broader ecosystem. Yeah. So if you're interested in political science, right? Mm-hmm. <coughs> if you don't understand Roosevelt's fireside chats, you you don't understand who Roosevelt was or his right. relationship with his with the citizens at the mm-hmm, time mm-hmm. or the electorate or like how did a guy in a wheelchair get elected so many times right right and again like i'm not a roosevelt scholar my area really is more <laughs> 60s 70s 80s mm-hmm. um i think traditional historians are probably shaking their head because <laughs> they're required to know like hundreds of years for their different eras that they specialize in and i'm like 100 years <laughs> yeah yeah but really just three decades um <laughs> But I, I think if you study anything political, you have to understand television. Right. Um, and I would, I, I'm very U.S. focused, but mm. I actually think there's a huge transnational element. I was just working on some stuff on the BBC in the 80s. You cannot understand the BBC in the 80s without understanding Thatcher and her political agenda yeah. and how she was trying to kill it <laughs> <laughs> and how it was structured in a way to be protected from power so she would change the fees that were being charged. She would not increase the taxes for that raise money for the BBC. Mm. So that essentially kills the funding without dismantling it yeah. directly. Right, right. If you look at U.S. history and politics in the 90s, you cannot understand what's going on with polarization um, and, and Clinton and Gingrich without understanding cable mm. and the nicheification of, of television interests, right. targeting different audiences. So... I think if you're a history student or um, a historian, um, even <laughs> I mean, even if you're not looking at the last hundred years, thinking about um, the ecosystem and how people communicate with each other, and how how our culture represents itself, mm-hmm. um, is is vital to understanding everything else that's going on. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think. <laughs> I think media studies is an important part of the his, his of history. Mm-hmm. Definitely. That makes sense. Uh, One last question before the break, and and that's, how does your work studying the history of media connect to our theme of uncovering untold stories? Well, I love this theme. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a media and cultural studies scholar. Um, so I am always interested in, in more grass, grassroots mm. histories, histories well, cultural studies, some cultural studies scholars might call histories from the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some very dominant histories of television. And right. I use television and broadcasting kind of as these blanket terms to really think about radio and then television as content that's going out, like a one-to-many broadcast going out and being received by audiences all, mm-hmm. over, the, all over the place. Um, and those dominant stories often focus on industry. Right yeah. on on yeah. powerful stakeholders, right? right? Um, and and also history is is shaped by what's available. Mm-hmm. That means you know my history is biased by the sources I was able to find. Right, right. But a lot so easy sources we know as historians, right, are often like industrial archives or government mm-hmm. archives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so um, there's uh, there's an archive at Wisconsin where I went to school. NBC donated all of their papers from 1923 to 1977. Oh, wow. The legal papers are not there. I found that out the hard way. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) They're in Princeton, New Jersey, I think, at the David Sarnoff um, archive. But so a lot of these, like a dominant history of of, of broadcasting might say, okay, you know, 
Radio is invented in 1920, and then it becomes the most popular um, form of entertainment through the through the 30s and 40s, mm-hmm. right? And that's part of that's the Great Depression and the war. Everyone, it, radio is very cheap. You buy it once, and you've got free entertainment. Oh yeah. So it really, radio really was the dominant form of media, like 1925, 26 through to, through the war years, through oh, to yeah. 48. Mm-hmm. That's a little bit past the war. And then, and then, like a dominant narrative might say, and then television, you know, is introduced, and that becomes dominant by 1962. And then now we have, and then we have cable in the 70s, and, and internet now, and it's like this one-way march towards progress where industry triumphs. And but that's just that that kind of history is a false. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, th- there's always tension and 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 narratives going on. But then it it, it what becomes invisible. Our audiences right. um, push back against these, against the way that power becomes distributed through media, mm-hmm. um, and um, and and also thinking about, um, I guess when I think about grassroots media history, I'm thinking of audiences. But you could think about more independent media, mm-hmm. local media. Those stories tend to get alighted. Right. Also within that dominant narrative, like any like traditional broadcast history textbook kind of stops talking about radio in the 50s. Mm-hmm. And that's just, radio actually continues on. It's right. actually, if you were to go to your car right now and your phone is dead, you can find a radio station <laughs> to take you to Tuscaloosa or wherever you have to drive. Yeah. If your phone has ever died on a trip, you've probably tuned into radio. Am I getting close to the ad break? No. All right, okay. So <laughs> I, I guess... What I was interested in, like this idea of uncovering untold stories, that's what I do. Yeah. I'm really way more interested in histories that haven't been looked at. Right. And um, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but when, when I, was, I was doing that, taking those courses in graduate school, thinking about um, historiography and how to do historical research, and I was observing um, some people making a radio show about the past – I started wondering where are these coming from? Who's listening to this? What's up? Yeah, and it led me to these sort of grassroots networks of collectors and fans who had been kind of building these um, their own personal library of radio shows from the twenties through the fifties. Oh yeah, and and I had never even thought about that. Right. Um, and, and then I started kind of digging into it as well with television and just looking at kind of pockets of audience behavior that no one has written about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so getting at audience re- historical audience research is um, not very well covered and not done a lot because there's no central archive. Yeah. To like, if I wanted to know how people in the 50s in, in Auburn, Alabama were watching television. Mm-hmm. How do you even start that? Right, yeah. <laughs> um, that project. I mean, I think I would maybe start looking through newspaper archives and trying to find letters to the editor or, or names or trying to find any kind of trace I could where people are talking about how they watch TV. Yeah. And, and so I look at media in people's everyday lives, mm-hmm. which I think is a, a vastly untold story yeah, about absolutely. our relationship with these technologies. Yeah, that's really cool. And <laughs> and uncovering them gets to tell a lot of really important uh, pieces of the history of the U.S. and yes. just media in general. Absolutely. Very absolutely. cool. All right, we're going to take our first ad break, but we'll see you in two minutes. 
Good morning and welcome back to It's All History to Me. This morning, Sophia and I are being joined by Dr. Patterson and she is a professor here at Auburn and the Department of Communication and specifically with Media Studies. So Dr. Patterson's upcoming book entitled Bootlegging the Airwaves, Alternative Histories of Radio and Television Distribution is going to be published in February 2024. The book explores the history of people sharing media before digital sharing was prominent. She details the networks that formed between people and sharing media. So what drew you specifically to research broadcasting history for your book? <laughs> well, um, first, I, I need to say we're the School of Communication. Oh, you're journalism. right. You're right. Yes. And, um, the program of film and media studies. Absolutely. Only as shameless promotion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you're listening to this and you're undeclared. Yeah, yeah. Come see me, Tishner 107. <laughs> Absolutely. See if I can't persuade you to major in film and media studies. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, uh, <laughs> thank you. No, I'm very excited. This is my first book. And, yeah, wow. Um, it's probably been the result of 10 years of work. Woo. In many ways. Um, in some ways, you know, very much like also the last five years <laughs> of my life. Um, what drew me to broadcasting? I think... Uh, <laughs> I think I started doing research uh, in a time where television um, itself has become our, one of our primary um, tele there's a lot of television mm -hmm. over the, like when I was in, when I was going to my master's when I was going to my PhD there, television has just the number of outlets for television has really increased my own viewing television has become more on demand. So I think I was, like, interested in in writing about 30 Rock just because it was something I was interested in watching. Yeah. Um, but I think some of the things that have come to resonate me, with me as I, I think about why I like it from a historical perspective is that broadcasting is, in my mind, one of the more democratic forms of media. Oh, yeah. Um, it does not cost any money. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, you might be saying, wait a minute, I'm 20, paying 25 bucks for Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> right, I right. I mean, subscriptions do cost money. Mm -hmm. But you could go out, buy a digital antenna at um, Best Buy or somewhere else, set it up with your television, and you could get free television mm, yeah. um, from the major networks <clears throat> without paying anything ever again. Mm -hmm. Well, unless you need to buy a new antenna. Like, <laughs> right. Um, so it's often, I think broadcasting is a very democratic form of media, and, and, it, and it's also associated with the masses because mm. of that. Yeah. Um, because because it, it's free and it's easily accessible and it's in the home. Mm -hmm. So all of those things attract me to it because I'm, <laughs> I'm more interested in popular culture and um, media that is consumed that is often thought of at like like I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm stumbling over what I'm trying to say, but I think within within the field of film and television or film and media studies, there's a lot that's put on film as an art form. Mm, yeah, and I think I'm very in, I love film. I go see film. I, I think studying it is extremely important. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole host of other ways of studying it. I just was drawn to something that's I think often dismissed because it's seen as being more commercial more associated with, like, the dirty masses, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, with women, um, mm -hmm. and being being something that's in the home historically um, and situated within a space um, associated with femininity. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I guess, I, I like, I root for the underdog. I'm interested in, in um, grassroots research overall. And so, I don't know, those are some things that 
make me excited to be a broadcast historian. Yeah. Um, I have my colleagues in film are probably like, why are you, you don't have to tumble one to, to say why you like doing the other because there is that, there are film historians who do that kind of grassroots research and we, right. have, we have one here. Oh yeah. Dr. Andrea Kelly is, is working on more grassroots distribution of, of cinema. <laughs> And, and how people use it in their everyday lives. And mm-hmm. so I, I, I don't mean to dismiss other things. I just think um, within our field, especially like when media studies is kind of coming into its own, um, it's, it's very easy to think about television as this kind of background noise or radio. And, and I, I like putting a light on those areas. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I don't know. I, <laughs> I probably should have had another cup of coffee this morning. Oh, no. Oh, no. What does the subtitle Alternative Histories of Radio and Television Distribution mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) What does it mean? (laughs) I probably went through about 10 different titles for this book. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, And I I hope that there are some people out there who review it who take issue with this subtitle. (laughs) What what does she mean by alternative? Um, So like I said a little bit earlier, I don't know if you're just tuning in or, you know, I... Broadcasting is understood as a media, a medium of one-to-many distribution, Mm -hmm. right? It's different from newspapers um, or film because historically it's been encountered as it airs. Okay, yeah. Yeah, You know, like it's simultaneous. Right. Like you can tune into, what are we, 91.1? Yes. And hear us talking right now. Right. Um, As a newspaper, you have to go buy it. It's been written the day before. yeah, yeah. And, and it is one to many, but it's a physical object. Broadcasting right. is more ephemeral, right? Yeah. It exists in the ether. The right, airways. right. Um, well, that's a very dominant way of understanding distribution, right? How content goes to audiences. Um, and when I was looking at the histories, histories plural, um, to think about, okay, there's this idea of distribution as a one to many ongoing flow of content simultaneously transmitted. Right. Um, that's set up by the networks and the broadcasters as their way of collecting an, in, an audience who is listening to, so that they can sell that audience to advertisers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, another way of distributing content is to make physical recordings mm. and share it with each other. But that's not that's not how distribution is understood. No. Very, I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to say I'm the first person to write about bootlegging, <laughs> um, and, and specifically radio or television. Right. There's, there's quite a bit of research out there on bootlegging, um, music. Mm, okay. On bootlegging film. Mm-hmm. Um, there are one or two pieces about radio, about well, about television, I would say, and recording television and redistributing it as physical media. In storage media. And what I mean by storage mediums are things like cassette tapes, reel-to-reel tape, right. things that can take this ethereal content and capture it. Yeah. Um, uh, but that's an alternative history uh, to understand how people encounter media. Mm-hmm. Again, like, if you read any textbook, it will tell you that, you know, until until streaming, <laughs> you know, we had, we had to, like, listen appointment television. You had to be tuned to NBC 8 o'clock on Thursdays to watch Friends. Mm -hmm. And that's just not the case. And in fact, my research goes back to the 20s to show that people were recording off the air. But it's an alternative way of understanding distribution. Right, right. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) 
So your book explores a variety of subcultures ranging from bootlegging communities for uh, Starsky and Hutch to Australians wanting to watch Star Trek. What do these subcultures have in common? Um, well, they are, they are audiences they found sources about. Right, yeah, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> any, any historian who does not admit that up front, yeah. think, you know, our history is so shaped by what we have access to to, yeah. to look at traces of the past. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew, I, I like, I got into these radio collectors. I discovered this really great um, archive that this amateur, I shouldn't say amateur, they didn't go to college for history, but okay. they had collected and scanned newsletters from the 60s up to today mm-hmm. uh, from their different radio clubs. And oh. I probably read hundreds of newsletters from these radio collectors Yeah, because they formed clubs and they would write in and talk with each other about what they were listening to, different recordings they had, mm-hmm. and kind of what we would call crowdsourcing with each other to to make their own collections to be as complete as possible. Mm-hmm. Because with something like broadcasting, the industry was not interested in selling recordings. Right. <laughs> and with many shows, they just it just wasn't feasible from a technological standpoint. Like to record to, to have something like the Jack Benny show that went out every week. Um, and and you would have a record would be you know the recordings the storage medium you mm-hmm. just to sell a collection right it was they were broadcasting was very much produced in the moment to collect audiences for advertisers oh, yeah. so the industry didn't have an interest in selling recordings mm-hmm. and and that extends to television you know we think about um, people so if you <laughs> I loved your question you're like Starsky and Hutch <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> this was a this was a TV show on in the in the late seventies okay. Um, it, it was very popular at the time. Yeah. And um, you don't have Miami Vice. You don't have sexy cop TV shows without Starsky and Hutch. It's one of the first that kind of used a cinema verite approach to, like, crime solving oh, with yeah. a duo. Okay. Right? I, uh, I, and Dragnet's probably an early. There are always, like, genealogies of these genres. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but what do these people all have in common? Like, well, they wanted to – they were – Fans of these television shows, they wanted to be able to rewatch them. Right, yeah. And um, it's very hard to build a collection without working with other people mm-hmm. um, to gather up episodes, especially if you come in halfway. I mean, it's about access. Yeah. Um, distribution is about control. Mm-hmm. And the industries create a bottleneck. You have to access it here. And these people came together to try and circumvent that by yeah. sharing recordings with but they they you really have to work together. It's very hard to come, to have a full collection especially in in the 70s and 80s without networking with other people. Right. Um and in Australia specifically, if you wanted to watch Star Trek from 1971 to 1992, you had to bootleg it mm. um, because it wasn't officially being distributed over there. Oh. There were some recordings in reruns um, but after the television show end was was canceled, um, and, and the thing is that media, like who do we, it becomes this bigger question of who does television belong to? Yeah. If you're a Star Trek fan, and this is a show that excites you and, and stimulates your creativity, and you want it, you know, it, it's how you connect and talk with other people mm-hmm. who you get along with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You want to be able to watch it. Right. Um. Maybe, I don't know if you guys know what fan fiction is. Yes. Cosplay. 
any of these things that, again, like, often get dismissed in popular culture as being, like, weird or eccentric, these are very real ways that people find a creative outlet in their everyday lives. Um, And you can't have any of that without recordings of television. So a lot of of these different fan communities um, create these ways to circumvent industry control and and, and build their own libraries. Mm. Um, And I would argue, oh, I guess I'm getting ahead of myself, but (laughs) um, I would say, like, my research is more focused on these communities of fans because I, I ended up finding some great archival sources. Okay, yeah, yeah. For um, these newsletters that people would write for each... It's funny because you may not have ever heard of Starsky and Hutch, but when I was looking at this archive, it's like there's still online forums d- dedicated to this television. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> Um, but like he was such a, it was a show that was only on for like three or four years mm-hmm. and it had this dedicated in-depth following like from nine it goes off the air in 1979 up through the 2000s like publishing a zine I don't know if you know what zines are um, these are just basically amateur newsletters like okay. a magazine made by people with a copy machine and a typewriter right okay um and it's, it's I'm like, when I stumbled upon that, I was like, gosh, that's interesting, right? You know, thousands of people, I mean, not hundreds of thousands, but thousands of people invested in this television show. It's not just about the TV show, it's about themselves. And, right, yeah. And then they connect with other people through it as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll talk more about that later, I think. But and So there are obviously gaps of, of things that I haven't been able to capture. Right. That because... It, I ended up looking at archival materials related to these communities. Mm-hmm. I know that there are individuals out there taping, collecting, mm-hmm. re-watching, using home recording technology. And this is one of the things about doing alternative research in history or uncovering untold stories is that it, it requires a lot of digging. Right. And you you, you can come up along, along dead ends so you kind of go with what you get. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I would say this is not a comprehensive history. Yeah. I hope it's a starting point and that other people take it up as well. Yeah, all oh, very cool. All right, it's time for our next ad break, but we'll see you in two minutes. Hello, and welcome back to It's All History to Me. If you're just joining us, this morning we're joined with Dr. Patterson and discussing her, her book, Bootlegging the Airways, Alternative Histories of Radio and Television Distribution, that's going to be published in February of next year. Her book can, explores a variety of subcultures amongst these bootlegging communities. And so for our, next, our first question of this segment, why was tape trading important to these sub- subcultures? Yeah, thank you again, and thanks for having me, by of the course. way. I'm really yeah. enjoying this. <laughs> um, so tape trading, I just if you don't know what that is, I feel like yeah. I should explain it just yeah. a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, is there a TV show that you guys... An older television show you're interested in that you've watched? Friends, I think, is one that comes off the top of my head. Yeah, Friends is very, very popular. Yeah. <laughs> and gosh, I'm like, how many years was Friends on for? Ten years? How many seasons are there? I, is it 11? I, I thought it was 10. 10, 10 or 11. I, probably 10. Okay. okay, well, so let's just take Friends as a case study, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, 10, let's say they have 10. Yeah. <laughs> We're making up history. But just for this, this like, mental exercise, every broadcast, at least in the late night, you know, broadcast seasons used to be longer. So you, mm-hmm. sometimes when I look back at a show like Father Knows Best, I'm like, 36 episodes. Right. What were they doing? 
today, a traditional network sitcom, like, mm-hmm. Friends would have 22 episodes a season. Right. So 22 times 10, 210 television episodes. Uh-huh. Okay, so let's just imagine a world where there's no cloud storage. <laughs> <laughs> there's no streaming services. Um, if you get into a show like Friends, the only way to watch previous episodes is either to hope they come on in reruns, mm-hmm. <laughs> but reruns are edited and changed, too. Oh, yeah. So if you wanted to like watch the um, episodes as they aired, you would probably try to find a recording of them. Yeah. And let's say you're a really big fan. Mm-hmm. Like you would you want to you want to have every episode. Mm-hmm. Um if you want a recording, um <clears throat> it's easier to do that if you're working with a group of people. Right. And so tape trading um a lot of the times it really is trying to overcome perhaps geographical distance. Let's say you live in a town where friends isn't being broadcast. Mm-hmm. So you you like start, you know, you you see um a magazine, you find that you see a letter to the editor, like, I'm a big Friends fan, you know, I'm looking for other episodes. Yeah. You would start maybe writing with someone and exchanging tapes in the mail. Mm. And that's what tape trading is. And it's often based upon, like, okay, if you have episodes 1 through 10 from season 5, mm-hmm. I have episodes 15 through 20 from season 4. I'll make a copy for you. Oh, you yeah. can send me your copies. We can exchange. Or oh. if you don't have any, let's say you're just... Getting into this TV show, yeah, you can send me ten blank tapes, and oh. I'll record them, and I'll give you five episodes back because that's yeah. like an, it's a bartering system, right? Right. <laughs> um, so interesting. <laughs> that's what tape trading is. Um, Friends would probably not be. I think there are certain shows and programs that have lent themselves to this. Like, I write a whole chapter about wrestling. Oh, okay, yeah. Because before WWE became a national program. Mm-hmm. If you lived in the South, you only had access to certain um, events. Oh, and so interesting. You, and, and if someone lived in Minnesota and they wanted to know the outcome of a wrestling match, they would try to make friends around oh. the country and trade tapes with each wow. other. Or if you wanted to watch um, a wrestling match from Japan, yeah, you would probably try to make friends in Japan. Wow. Or um, in places that might, like in the 80s, you start having cable and satellite. Mm-hmm. but. That would not be every city. Yeah. So it's about trying to close that gap between both geographical availability or time. Like yeah. Like sh- content that has already aired. Right, right. Anyways, <laughs> yeah. um, I do think tape trading comes up with subcultures that have a dedicated fandom, mm-hmm. like Star Trek, Starsky and Hutch had one, yeah. uh, Miami Vice. These are all things I, I write about in my book. Um, because <clears throat> there's a real investment in rewatching cult- cult- right. a culture, I would call of rewatching and studying. Yeah. But I also think, um, I think in general, tape trading becomes important as a networked way to amass your own collections. Yeah. Um, and again, like subvert the control of distribution. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Very cool. Okay. So for our last question, kind of on your book to wrap things up, uh, I'll try and combine a couple of questions here. So why are these subcultures important to study? And overall, what do you hope that readers will take away from your book? I think that's a good way to to think about this. Yeah. Um, So I was talking about Mm rewatching. I just, I, my, my research looks at media and everyday life. So I think it gives us an important snapshot of how people actually engage with broadcasting, with right. radio and with television, yeah. in their day-to-day lives. 
not just like thinking of them as mindlessly like as as a, a commodity that the broadcast networks sell to advertisers. Right. Um, and and that's the term in my field, the audience commodity. It's a mm. it's kind of the paradigm of understanding distribution. Yeah. And I'm trying to think about the power of audiences mm -hmm. to subvert that control. Yeah. But I think also one of the main things in my book is that when you think about how people are actually using something, you can see how meaning changes. Oh, so yeah. I'll just go back to Starsky and Hutch for one minute. <laughs> yeah. Um, this was a show about two cops in the 70s fighting crime in a fictional city, Bay City, but it's supposed to be San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Um. If you just watch it as an airs, okay, yes, you're watching these stories. If you have a tape that you can replay and study, mm -hmm. the meaning changes. Oh, yeah. And one, one of the things that came up when I was reading through these archives of, of fan magazines mm -hmm. or fanzines or newsletters, as you might say, there was huge debate over whether they were, whether they were coded as being homosexual. Mm -hmm. um, like same with Captain Kirk and Dr. Spock. Mm -hmm. Not that that is necessarily a part of the script or anything, right. but if you study it. So one of the, one of the, there's this key episode where Starsky is rescuing Hutch mm. from being kidnapped. Mm -hmm. Hutch has been drugged by a crime lord. Oh no. <laughs> He's carrying him out of the house. They're in an alleyway. Mm -hmm. And like, there's this moment where if you rewatch it, it can almost look like they kiss each other. Oh. And, Fans in the 80s were drawing out, like, were freeze-framing it oh. and drawing out each frame of the TV show mm. and, and arguing that this meaning is there. And yeah. so the meaning, ch I think we cannot understand meaning unless we understand audiences. Right. Like, if a television is playing in an empty room, does it have any meaning? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> no, it, it's made, the meaning is made by the way audiences engage with mm -hmm. it. And when you have something on a storage medium or that you can rewatch on demand, like Netflix, yeah, you can rewatch something over and over. Right. How you understand it and how you interpret it changes. Yeah. If you watch it with other people, if mm -hmm. you've ever watched it, The Bachelor or Game of Thrones in a group of people, your interpretation is shaped by that right. environment. So I had hoped, like, if, if you read my book, one of the things you take away <laughs> is that the content is never given. Like, yeah. how we engage with it shapes its meaning. Right. And um, that there are these alternative <laughs> yeah. forms of engagement that just haven't been looked at before. And I think this is a big issue today. Mm -hmm. Even with all of our on-demand options, yeah. there's still industry control. So if you, right. if we, like, I tend to think, okay, broadcasting, one to many, have to turn the TV on, have an antenna. Mm -hmm. But if we think of broadcasting as... HBO Max, mm -hmm. you know, that's a broadcaster. Yeah. <laughs> they have a service that we access. Um, they take things away from their library oh, that's that we cannot get, and that's right. that distributional control. And oh, that's one of the yeah. big tensions, I think, in television today. Right. So. Oh, very interesting. And I guess I would say it has a prehistory. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> cool. So we're going to move into our last ad break, but we'll see you right after the break. Good morning and welcome back to our final sec segment of It's All History to Me. We're here with Dr. Patterson and I think we're going to move into our trivia sec segment now. All right, cool. So for our first trivia question for you, when was the first radio broadcast in the United States? <laughs> well, <laughs> so um, I think this is, a, this is a good question because what is a broadcast and what is radio? Oh, yeah. <laughs> look at me. I'm like, I can't take my – you can take the professor out of the classroom. Right. But you can't take the classroom out of the professor. Yeah. 
Um, because, of course, there were lots of experiments with radio before it became a one-to-many. Okay, okay. Radio used to be a one-to-one mm, or many-to-many. Right. Like, it was... I try to explain it almost as, like, an early, like, group me or Google mm. Hangouts or Zoom where you could tune your dial and just connect to a frequency and anyone who had a radio set could talk. Oh, interesting. So it was... but. We would be talking to each other. Right. Like, over the radio. And, right. and this is still like walkie talkies use radio frequencies. Okay. Ham radio is a is a frequency. Mm-hmm. So that kind of transmission I think was happening in the late eighteen hundreds, early t- early nineteen hundreds. Okay. This okay. is my fancy way of saying like I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, no. Uh. <laughs> I would I would guess. Um so <laughs> I was I, I would guess the, like the teens is where you start to see that one to many where uh-huh. the ability for talking back or participation is right. shut down. Okay, okay, interesting. Um, yeah. So I would say 1919, KDKA by Pittsburgh Westinghouse Electric and Manufacturing Company on November 2nd, 1920, announcing the live returns of the presidential election between Warren G. Harding and James Cox. See, this is, like, this is, I mean, this makes sense to me. I am positive that I read this. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Again, like, early, early radio is actually one of the more covered areas in radio history, so I I don't write about it in depth. Yeah. Um, But... What is Westinghouse's interest in this? Well, mm. they were thinking about making radio sets. Oh, okay, And yeah. the same with RCA, mm-hmm. was the Radio Corporation of America. They're making these appliances. Yeah. Uh, appliance is the wrong word, but con- consumer electronics, Yeah. Right? So they start experimenting with broadcasting as mm-hmm. content to get people to buy these, ele- these electronics. Mm. So it doesn't surprise me that Westinghouse Electric. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think this is also an engineering, this is an engineering question, too. Mm-hmm. I would imagine, I think I was trying to look up when Auburn first transmitted its first broadcast. And it's, yeah. I think it's 1922 from Braun Hall. Okay. The engineering. Yeah, <laughs> The engineering yeah. building. Because radio was a new technology. Mm-hmm. Radio was the social media of the 1920s. Uh, and, yeah. and the teens, too. Like, people would take, like, buy things and ma- make them in their basement and play around yeah. with it. The same way that we might be like, let's make an app, you guys. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> or what we might think of early kind of, not startup, because these were amateurs who were playing around with technology. Mm-hmm. But kind of similar to what we think of as, like, Steve Jobs and oh, Steve yeah. Wozniak doing in their basement. Oh, huh, very cool. So, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, you're good. We just wanted to ask a trivia question. No, no, I like those answers, and it's fun to get to more context, too. (laughs) I think the number one thing my students, one of them is probably that I go into rabbit holes. Oh, no. (laughs) It's a perfect place for that here. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. All right. For our second and last trivia question, who was the first U.S. president to have a TV set in the White House? Again, this is this is not a question I came in here knowing the answer to. <laughs> so I'm going to be honest. I would have probably guessed Eisenhower. Okay. Um, because that his administration is when you really see television come into its own. Right. Right. So I guess I'll say Eisenhower. Okay. <laughs> 
According to archives.gov, President Truman had a television in his, in his second floor study on, in the White House when television was still in, in infancy in the United States in 1947. See, you're making me want to check, like, when did Eisenhower enter office? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I mean, so this he was obviously a very early adapter because mm-hmm. you really see television taking off. NBC p- starts pushing hard. Um, in 1948. Okay. Look at me. I'm like, when was Eisenhower? Oh, 1953. <laughs> Again. <laughs> kind I'm, of in, in similar time. I'm supposed time. to be a historian. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so much more than names and dates. Um, but so television takes off in the 50s. It's not the most... There's there are research that says you don't get to a large number of the population having a TV set in their house till 1960, 1961, 62. Mm. So I was like 50s. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but television's invented during the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. The first television demos are not. Sorry, this is a date I do know. 1939. Yeah. <laughs> RCA is doing demonstrations of television at the World's Fair in New York. Mm. Sarnoff really was investing in this, um, and so. David Sarnoff is like the chairman of the board of RCA, yeah. one of our great media empires. They owned RCA Victor, they owned NBC, they owned RCA Electronics, mm. and he wanted to have television um, as as the next kind of frontier of of of, of content. Yeah. Um, so yeah, <laughs> so obviously Truman is an early what we would call an early adapter, ah, right? yes, <laughs> of a new technology. Like whenever they come up with the Google like chips for our brain where we can just watch television. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I don't know if I'll be an early adapter. Yeah. (laughs) Probably not. But he's, he's kind of the equivalent. It's interesting to think too, is like the White House is this kind of important figure. Like I, I definitely was reading something about, um, record players in the White House. Like there, like there's this, I think it's 1912, 1911, where it's the first like record player in the White House. And the thing about putting these electronics into the White House, Mm -hmm. where was it? It was on the second floor study. Like, they didn't know where to put television sets. Oh, yeah. Like, we think of television, oh, yeah, it goes in the middle of the living room, Mm -hmm. right? But people were like, is this something that we put in our parlor? Do we put it in our study? Mm -hmm. Do we put it in the basement? Interesting. (laughs) Do we put it in the kitchen? You know, I think there was a there's a very great there's a great book called Making Room for Television where she looks at women's magazines and, mm-hmm. and lifestyle magazines from the forties and fifties to think about how television becomes defined as like the family hearth. Oh yeah. In the center of the living room. Huh. And I would be very curious for how Truman was watching it. Yeah. Was he gathering the family into his study? Or was it seen more as like this masculine sort of like at the end of the day, I retire with my pipe. <laughs> right. So yeah. Interesting. That is um, a good question. Something, I don't know. Kennedy is often thought of as the first TV family that brought television, the television cameras into their house. Mm-hmm. His debates were televised. Jackie does the tour. Right. So another significant presidency. Yeah. Related to TV history. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Well, to wrap up this morning, we have two final questions. Uh that we always like to ask our guests before we close for the hour. Uh, why is it important that we study media history? Okay. <laughs> Again, I just think um, you can't understand any other aspect of history without thinking about the broader ecosystem. Right. Um, and how how technology and the way we tell stories to ourselves affects and influences other things and how politics, social movements influence media and television. Right. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. I know you have one oh, no, question. you're good. Yes. Last one. <laughs> what advice do you have for current and future students of history? Um, I, I think hopefully one thing you might take away or maybe you haven't is um, to think outside the box when you think about sources yeah. and where, where you do your historical research. I think you have to chase something that interests you. Right. To let, to let your everyday experience point you towards something that lights you on fire. Yeah. And then don't be afraid to do unorthodox historical research. Mm. Um, when I was doing my research, I was going to thrift shops oh, wow. and flea markets. Yeah. And kind of thinking about, like, oh, I found this recording of radio that was being sold in the 80s. Mm-hmm. What's the name of the company? Oh, yeah. Um, thinking about doing oral history and mm-hmm. interviews with people about how they how they experience something. Yeah. Um, I'm teaching a television history class in the spring. Um, these are some of the things I want to tackle, yeah. um, as well as looking at, you know, the history of, of broadcasting through our, our, our culture. It's very U.S. focused, although we do talk about global television as well. Yeah. So I think all history students on campus should take my class. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, very cool. Nice. All right. So thank you so much, Dr. Patterson, for joining us this morning. Uh, we've had a great time getting to talk with you. It's been such a pleasure to be here. Aww, thank well, you. thanks. Yes, yes. And to wrap up, our thank yous to uh, all of our sponsors here. Thank you to the History Department and Dr. Schultz, our History Club advisor. Thanks to the College of Liberal Arts for uh, all their support. <laughs> thank you to our researcher, Colby, who helps us put together our questions every week. And he was actually the one who reached out to you initially Dr. Patterson. So thanks, Colby, for that as well. Thanks, Colby. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you to Weagle for having uh, the space and airtime for us to be a part of uh, the radio waves here at Auburn. And thank you to our listeners. We'll see you next week. Thank you. See you next week. You've been listening to It's All History to Me, the show dedicated to exploring the people, places, and ideas of our past. Be sure to tune in next Thursday at 8 a.m. for more. But for now, keep it here on Weagle 91.1. See you next time.